This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're so happy to explore the new adventure of Woody, Buzz, Bo Peep, and some new characters like Forky, Gabby Gabby, Ducky, and Bunny, and of course, Canada's favorite daredevil, Duke Kaboom. Uh, so it helps us understand Toy Story 4 and how Pixar keeps making one great movie after another. Please welcome to the script to screen the UCSV Policy Theater stage screenwriter, Stephanie Folsom. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, um, let's, uh, let's go back to the beginning. How exactly is a screenwriter summoned and recruited by Pixar? Well, I'd had a general meeting there um, shortly after I'd had a script that made the blacklist, and I just got to know um, Mary Coleman, who was in charge of development, and um, it was just like a very brief meeting, and it was just, I got a tour of the campus, and then a year or two passed after that, and then I got a call from my agent, and he was like, okay, they have a project they want to bring you on board for, we're going to fly you up to where the studio is in Emeryville, and they want to talk to you about it. And I was like, well, what project is it? And I'm like, we can't tell you. They'll tell you when you get there. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going up for a job that I can't prepare for at all, and it's Pixar. Like, this isn't intimidating at all. So I'm flown up there, and I walk into this conference room on the campus, and sitting there is Lee Unkridge, Pete Docter, Andrew Stanton, the director, Josh Cooley, the head of story, Valerie LaPointe. And I'm like, okay, this is all the heavy hitters at Pixar. And I sit down, and they're like, so we're meeting with you about writing Toy Story 4. And my response was, why? <laughs> why are you making Toy Story 4? And I, it was just such an instantaneous response, because I so loved Toy Story 3 and all the other franchises. And I thought the third one was such a lovely ending to the the franchise, and it freaking won an Oscar. I mean, it won Best Screenplay. I was like, why, why would you make another one? Um, and and I, I didn't know how to recover from being so blatant about my honest reaction. And fortunately, they were like, well, this is why we want to make it. And Andrew Stan said, he's like, I'd written a treatment while we were making Toy Story 3 because I thought Toy Story 3 left Woody's story unfinished. Mm. And then he kind of pitched me like the brief idea about what they were going to do for Toy Story 4, and it involved um, Woody finding his own way and reuniting with Bo Peep. Mm. And I was like, oh, we get to explore the character of Bo Peep more? I'm like leaning forward a little bit, and um, by the end of that meeting, I was like, okay, I, I'll do this. I get why this movie needs to be made. So, all right, so how difficult was for you and Pixar... Um to take Woody's most beloved character, the most beloved Pixar character, Woody, and have him leave his kid and friends? Like, what was the story oh, was, arcing that was, for that? That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think there was so much pressure. I mean, I know I myself grew up with these toys in Toy Story. Like, I grew up with this franchise. I think so many people grew up with this franchise. And in a weird way, it was kind of like your cartoon family in, a, in, a, in mm. an odd way. At least it was for me. Um, and having this idea that, like, Woody would leave his cartoon family was really, really um, mind-blowing and, and hard 
for, I think, a lot of the founding members there because uh, Toy Story was the movie that started Pixar. It's what brought the right. founders together. It's what got the company sold to Disney. Like, it was such a foundational part of their lives, of that company, and, and of their genuine friendship that those filmmakers had. And so being like, these characters that you incepted now need to move on and do other things was very, very hard for them. And I think it just came down to the fact that Woody needed to enter the next stage of his life, and there was no other way to do it. And I think it was innately built into Andrew's original treatment um, that this idea that Woody should have left with Andy, but he sacrificed that future Mm -hmm. to help the other toys. And so I was like... Andrew, if that's your impetus for making this, then Woody does have to leave and go find his own destiny. Like, that's how you complete his arc. Mm. So, so, so we have that. So you really, your opening traumatic incident is Woody not leaving with Bo Peep. Yeah. She, if, so how did you approach writing that sequence? And it's a question of animation. How do you write trying to visualize it? Because it's stunning. The scene itself is stunning yes. on screen. But how do you write visualizing that kind of sequence? Because that was really the the start of the movie. Well, I think we spent so many times iterating that scene, and there were so many different versions of it, because, as you said, that really that inciting incident is, like, really the launch pad for this entire thing, and we had to fill in a whole emotional backstory for Bo Peep that was only kind of, like, layered in the other films, but the entire movie wouldn't work if you didn't buy into that relationship. And um, the great thing about Pixar, um, which is a wonderful experience as a writer, is you get to work with this entire story team of storyboard artists. And what they do is they do rough sketches of every single scene and make kind of like an animatics version of the film, and they screen that as reels. So every scene you write is put into the storyboard artists, and they draw it, and you kind of workshop with them on how the scene should play out. And so... It's kind of like instantaneously being able to shoot your scene and see what it looks like, and mm-hmm. it's just it's just such great insight into like how things play on the page and how they're immediately interpreted and shown that you just don't get if you're doing live action, and you're able to really kind of craft the script and craft the image at the same time. Right. So then, how do you work with? If we take that scene for example, how did you work with Tom Hanks and Annie Potts? You know, in the actual recording it. Oh, I mean, it, it, you have to kind of, as the writer, I, I, I say like in animation, um, the writer is kind of almost like the story police to a certain extent because you're kind of the keeper of the story along with the director between all the departments. And so you're brought into many aspects of the filmmaking process that as a live-action writer you wouldn't be able to. So you're part of the editorial process. You're part of the voice recording process. Um, we actually find beautiful moments while the actors are recording their lines, you know, and Tom Hanks is recording his lines, and if we key key into an emotional moment there, like, we'll just start writing more lines to, like, do a deeper dive into that scene and see how it plays out, and so it's kind of like this great back and forth that you get to have with the actors while they're recording, and you're writing, um, you're doing rewrites while you're recording them. You mentioned backstage, but normally actors will record separately. Yes. But in this situation, especially in the Bo Peep Woody scene where she says, you know, I have to leave and he's staying, how was that process different? Well, we, uh, were, we were recording them separately, um, which is what you do just to get a clean audio track, and then you edit it together. And editing them together... Um, it, it, it played just fine, but it wasn't hitting the right emotional resonance because even though the drawings of those two characters were looking each other in the eye and having this emotional moment, you could tell in their voices 
that they weren't visually connecting with each other in a weird way. And so we had to do like a special rig where we got them both in in the recording um, booth and we still had to do a thing where we isolated their voices and they could be tweaked and everything. Um, But we were able to situate them so that Annie and Tom were looking at each other while they recorded those lines. And just making that slight shift in just their performance actually made that entire scene work because it was suddenly saying those lines, actually literally looking someone in the eye made them a completely different read than when it was just they were isolated and in the recording booth. It almost sounds like uh, live action uh, actors don't like green screen. Yeah, they completely. You know, it's just something where they better have the actor in front of you. Well, and I have such respect for any type of voiceover work because literally they are just in a booth with a microphone and just a sheet of paper telling them what to say. And it's they have to imagine it all. You know, if they're running, they have to run in place so it makes it sound like they're running. Like, it's 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 a crazy job. <laughs> all right, so trauma affects characters in different ways in their behavior. So we'll start with Woody. He lost Bo Peep. He lost Andy. He's no longer head toy when he moves to Bonnie's room. How do you approach Woody's character post-losing Bo Peep to redefine his new place in the world? Well, I, I think that was also kind of a trick going into Toy Story 4 because I think Woody, even though he'd struggled quite a bit, I think he didn't really have any real trauma um, until Toy Story 3 where he had to really give up Andy. And I think that was a real formative moment for him. Uh, and it was like, how do, you make, how do you make what happens to Woody more traumatic than giving up Andy? Like, that was what we were tasked with doing. And we were like, well, what, what does Woody value above all else? Well, he values his relationship with his child above all else. Um, he values his friendship with his toys above all else. And so it was, like, keying into those two things to, like, kind of, like, put Woody through the ringer as much as possible and, and creating um, a reason why he could go. You know, I, I, think, I think having Bonnie... Woody naturally wouldn't be the favorite toy because she's a girl. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not going to love the little cowboy. And I think he, I think we, we, we ended up digging up with like all this, like, how do we make things the most traumatic as possible for Woody? We came into this really idea that Woody had a pretty privileged life for mm-hmm. a toy. You know, um, he'd always had a kid, he'd always been in a good room. He hadn't really, he had a good kid. You know, he didn't have Sid from Toy Story 1 that abused his toys. Like, he was in a really, really good position. And so making him just not be the favorite toy would be rough. And then we can get into a little bit about, like, get having his voice box and what makes him a toy being taken away would be a whole other level. Well, I was also interesting. He almost resumed, like, a farther role, like when he was looking through the knapsack at Bonnie. It was mm-hmm. almost like a father looking through the window at school. I found it interesting because he became more of a dad, which leads to him adopting Forky. Yeah. Uh, so if, if Woody has to teach Forky how uh, he is buying security trash blanket. How fun was it writing a sequence when he tries to teach Forky just between being trash and a toy? Well, that was actually very hard because um, there were a lot of very disturbing versions of this scene um, because Forky, if out of context, Forky is kind of a really goofy, weird-looking toy and and kind of a little bit grotesque in a way and so he very often in like early iterations came across as almost like this zombie awful creature that was like coming out of the sack and everyone was like ah 
ah, and you were sitting there, and we were like, ah, that toy is terrifying. <laughs> and I think um, Andrew and I were trying to figure out, because Tony Hale's performance helped to soften that a lot, but it's still like him emerging from that sack was turning into more of a horror beat mm. than a funny, fun beat. And um, Andrew had snuck his dog into where we were writing because dogs aren't allowed on the Pixar uh-huh. campus. And his dog was actually hiding under the table. And we were like, come on, Grover, come out, come out. And Grover kind of like came out like this. And we were like, that's Forky's a puppy. Forky uh-huh. acts like a puppy. And suddenly it's not a horror beat anymore. It's a cute little, come on, come out. You're, you're going to be safe. You're going to be all right. <laughs> And it was, and you know, Forky, he's a fork, so the animators don't have a lot to do. Yeah. Like, so Tony must have done a lot of work to get the, you know, the character down because he didn't have the visuals to go. Well, and and I think that's just a credit to what a great performer Tony is, um, because it, it was like really creating humanity with a freaky-looking toy that believes it's trash. And so much of his lines, like, poor guy was just, like, over and over having to record, I'm trash, 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 no toy. And being able to instill, like, constantly saying I'm trash with actually some pathos and emotion is just, like, (laughs) such a credit to what an actor he is. (laughs) I felt bad. I was like, here's another line about how you're trash. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, little Bonnie, uh, children are given toys by usually parents or something like that. Bonnie makes her own toy because she's lonely and scared of school. How important was it for you to show her proactively working through her fears of going to kindergarten in this way of creating her own toy? Well, I think we, we had to make Bonnie and what she's going through relatable because I think instantaneously we all love as an audience Woody so much mm. and the fact that she didn't make Woody her favorite toy and kind of is rejecting him where your immediate instinct is like, well, why don't you like Woody? Like, what's wrong with you? And I think it was our job to make her a fully fleshed out character that you completely understood where she was coming from and how she was fearful. And I think that was not only important for the audience to fall in love with Bonnie, but that's also why Woody falls in love with Bonnie. Because I think at first he's bristled because he's like, why am I not your favorite toy? Why don't you love me? But then he sees just how she's struggling and how she's shy, and she's just looking for some kind of connection. And I think he's just like, no, it's my duty to be there for a child, whether I'm a favorite toy or not. And I think that was kind of a shift for that character that we hadn't seen in the other movies. Uh, Well, now let's talk about Peep, her trauma being discarded. Uh, She becomes a free, independent woman, a leader of toys, you know, lost toys. Um, how did you go about crafting her arc? Because you could have went different ways with her, you know, the there, there, there were different ways, um, and there, there was a version um, about when I came on board, and she was just really, like, this sad, sad character about being a lost toy, and was just, like, going back and said, oh, I'm so sad and lonely because I'm lost. Oh, Woody, thank goodness you're here to save me. And, I, I mean as being one of the few women on the project, I was like, no, we, we, we can't do that, gang. Like, no, like, like she, I know our ethos is that every toy is defined by the relationship with their kid. And I was like, but she needs to redefine who she is in the, in the face of trauma and what it means to be with a toy, what it means to be played with, and what it ultimately means to be there for a kid. And so it was taking kind of like the tragedy of and just playing just the complete tragedy of being thrown out and turning that into what do you do when society tells you you don't belong and you're thrown out? How do you define yourself? How do you empower yourself when the rest of the world won't? 
And now it's kind of like the seed of getting to Bo Peep where she is, kind of like with her gang of lost toys, and we play our own way, and we find our own way. Now, like the moment where her arm falls off. Yeah. And really freaked out. Like, oh, what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she just puts it back on. I mean, I think there's, there's something really empowering about that. Like, even if your arm falls off, like, it doesn't have to be a big deal. <laughs> Unless you're human. Yeah. Uh, now, one, <laughs> one person, uh, you know, she helped was Canada's favorite daredevil, Duke Kaboom, uh, who was also kind of discarded, thrown out as trash. How did you, uh, well, let's talk about the initial meeting with Keanu to develop the character, but how did you work with Keanu and kind of to create Duke Kaboom? Well, Keanu was great. I mean, we'd, uh, we'd had this idea, um, the story team and the director, about this evil Knievel kind of toy. Um, and we'd seen this YouTube video of the commercial for the Evil Knievel toy, and it was so obviously like a bad cut where it was like this toy got like, the kid was like, I have the best jumping toy ever, and reels it back, and it jumps, and then there's just like a hard cut, and it shows it landing, and it's obviously like that toy did not land. And um, we were like, what if like this whole toy's ego is built around this idea, this commercial that shows him landing perfectly, but that can never, ever be a real thing. And so we pitched this to Keanu, um, and he was sitting there, you know, at the table, and we were in the little Pixar dining area. It was me and the producer and Josh Kulit, and he's like, all right. He's like, I think I get this Duke Kaboom guy. I think I get where he's coming from. We're like, great, because Keanu Reeves would be perfect for this. And then he suddenly jumps up on the table, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what, what's happening here? And he starts posing. He goes, ha, 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 ha. And I'm like, I don't, this is amazing. I don't know what this is. Does this mean he doesn't want to do it now? I'm like, what's happening? And he's like, and, I, and he's like, and he looks at me, he's like, I'm Duke Kaboom and I am posing. He's like, I am posing because this is how I'm going to learn to do my amazing jump. And we were like, yes, yes, that's of course what you're doing. That's of course what Duke Kaboom could do. So the whole reason Duke Kaboom does this whole posing thing is because Keanu Reeves literally jumped on a table and did that while we were meeting him for the part. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned because, of course, I had that Evil Knievel set. And did it, it land? It did land, but not as far. We had a little um, fire thing. It was a lie. Yeah, it was a lie. But we, I still love that thing. Um, but it's interesting because that's one of the things I was thinking about because Pixar, obviously, animation appeals to kids, but also appeals to adults. And like the thing is, let's throw back to nostalgia and it makes it in my childhood. When, you, when, you, when you're writing a movie like this, are you thinking about that, trying to reach different audiences, like appealing to uh, a wider range? That's what I, I think that's kind of the beauty of Pixar. Um, and, you know, and, and this sounds awful, but the audience is never once taken into consideration <laughs> in a way. It, it's just all about like what organically is going to fit into this story and what needs to happen in this story and what's going to be the biggest emotional moment that we can have in this story. And everything comes from that place and that ethos. Um, you know, I've worked on a bunch of other stuff, and, of course, the audience is taken into factor, mm-hmm. usually in most storytelling, but they have a very special process there where it's just all about servicing what that character needs in that moment. So they're not going to worry about, uh, you know, it's too dark for kids or something like that? That's like, never a conversation. <laughs> um, the only time we, we p- would pull back on anything is if it just didn't feel right for the story. Hmm. You know, and I think that's why, you know, they have, like in Toy Story 3, like the toys were almost murdered in a flaming pit hmm. of fire. Like, it's, it's just... You know, I, I think that there is something to um, this idea that um, kids 
there is darkness in the world. And I think this is a way for kids in a safe environment to kind of get a taste of like some things you're going to have to experience in adult life, like loss and tragedy and, and, and death, yeah. Uh, also, some supporting characters, Ducky and Bunny, voiced mm-hmm. by Key and Peele. Uh, those actors, they're brilliant comedians, improvers, filmmakers. Um, and there was, a, and I love the scene where they're, they're playing to steal the keys from the owner, the complex. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> that was because we had a big plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> so we turned it into a joke. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know how toys could take the keys from the shop opener without getting caught. Because it was just so implausible. So there, there were a bunch of um, really elaborate plans that we'd actually were, were supposed to be real and happen, where they, where the toys would steal the keys off of her belt. But none of it seemed all that plausible. And so then we were just like, well, what if we just make it a joke? All these things that we actually tried to really do. <laughs> so how do you write for actors like that? Like, what is the process? Because they are so brilliant at the you know, the comedy and stuff like that. Well, I mean, with them, you know. As a writer, you're always very nervous when you're confronted with a performer that likes to improv because usually it doesn't go that well. And then you're like, that was wonderful. And, and here are the lines from the script. Um, <laughs> but with Key and Peel, it, it was really wonderful because you were able to give them kind of like tell them what the scene was about, where the characters need to emotionally go in the scene. And they were just able to rift things that we could actually edit together and put in the movie. And they just kept one-upping each other and getting more and more brilliant with every take. And it was just such a relief to just see that that process could actually be all used in the film. It it was really wonderful. I mean, that song, they they made that up just on the spot. There are so many wonderful verses to that song that we weren't able to put in the film, but that song goes on and on and on and just keeps getting more and more brilliant. Like, we want a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you also have Buzz, who in some ways uh, had to be a little cut back in this movie to give room for Woody and Bo Peep. How did that approach go to how much you were going to, you know, deal with the Buzz Lightyear thing? Well, I mean, I mean, the thing is, is that, um, you know, I think, I think Woody, when we talked about this, Woody has always had a bit of a codependent relationship with Buzz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that this movie was about Buzz seeing that Woody always having a need to take care of him and be there for him and support him was really crippling Woody from going on his own journey. And I think um, Buzz realizing that he was in the perfect place for himself with the toys in Bonnie's room and seeing that Woody wasn't was kind of the key to making that work. Um, And I think the, the little game that we had to play was getting Buzz to witness enough of the relationship with Woody and Bo that he was like, that's what my friend needs mm-hmm. in his life. But not so much where it became like an awkward date where Buzz was just sitting there, you know, being like <laughs> third the third wheel, wheel where like what, they're having this beautiful emotion moment and Buzz is like, hey, Woody, what's going on over there? Like, <laughs> so, but it's interesting because it, the whole thing was great, the inner voice, mm-hmm. like Buzz finding it. But it's actually, when we'll talk about more of the other characters, finding your own voice is certainly a theme here. How did that emerge? Um, the inner voice came from Andrew because um, the thing with Buzz Lightyear is like he's always a little bit delusional mm. in all the films, <laughs> and <laughs> and and 
you know, it was like, how do we make keep Buzz true to himself, a little bit delusional, but have something that pays off into the theme of this film? And Andrew came in and was just like, he thinks like his little voice box sounds are his actual conscience and his inner voice. And we we're like, all right, we could play with that. And we just ended up playing with that and developing it, and it ended up working really, really well. Now, you mentioned Forky looked creepy, but you actually did have creepy Vincent. Oh, yeah. The, the Stephen King-looking doll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he does not find his voice. No, no. And that, that, that was always hard, too, because um, you have uh, Gabby Gabby, um, and to establish her character when she's around characters that don't talk, you know, uh-huh. that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to Gabby Gabby. So uh, kids come up to me all the time and ask me the same question about movies. When is there going to be a kids' movie that explores the theme of human organ harvesting? <laughs> it is, it's a big qu- a question yeah. I always get. Yeah. Uh, how are we going to cover this theme in a kids' movie? Because every kid knows about it. Yeah, there were versions of it that were really appalling. Um, how, did that come about, how did that come about? <laughs> well, I mean, I think going back to this whole idea about like how do we make something that, that's worse for Woody than losing Andy... Um, it's it's about identity and how Woody invested himself in his identity and kind of what his defining feature as a toy was his voice box. And it was how Andy played with him. It's how all kids played with him. It's what defined him as a toy. And to give that up or to have that taken away meant he had to give away a fundamental part of himself. So, but yeah. And, and it, was, it was really hard to make it like they weren't tearing out his... Heart. And was there any? Was heart. there any decisions about he wouldn't sacrifice it, or he would? Be- there were. There were. There was a lot. There was. There was a version where he didn't sacrifice him. That obviously didn't work all that well. Um, and also, it, it was. It was a very hard magic trick of making um, the voice box something that you could understand what it was. Mm. So that's why we have that whole scene where Gabby Gabby like shows the record oh. and how it plays because. Yeah, otherwise it's just like, I want your voice box in me, and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> it would talk like Woody, and that yeah. would make it sense. Um, but it's interesting, because it was a nice little twist. That Gab- you know, Gabby's been the villain, but yeah. actually you flip her. Uh, how did you approach a scene where you finally have Gabby get her voice, Woody sacrifices himself, and the child rejects Gabby? Yes. So what was that process of developing that? Because that was well, a nice I little mean, twist. I, th- I think the whole thing with... Um, with Gabby Gabby is she believes she has to be perfect to be loved. Mm. And if you fixed her and made her her idea of perfect and she got what she wanted, it wouldn't complete her arc. It, it, would, it would be buying into the lie that she's been telling herself, which is you have to be perfect to earn a child's love. Um, it's pretty much you just have to find your right person. Well, it was interesting because uh, like Bonnie creating her toy, um, she chooses her lost child. Mm-hmm. I found that was, was that always kind of important. Like he, yeah. she would be proactively making the choice of the child, not just taking Bonnie. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there was a version where she just went home with Bonnie, and that that did not work at all. It was the most boring movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> but interesting, because Woody's always had this thing where it's my voice, my voice. He loses it, but now still finds a new voice. He does help Dukaboo make the jump mm-hmm. with his eyes closed. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite sequences. So that was something you were conscious of you want to make. Now we got to find Woody has to find another way to help toys. Well, completely. And I, and I think um, Woody, I think that's what makes um, Gabby and Woody such a, a fantastic like hero and quote-unquote villain pairing is because they both believe believe the same thing incorrectly 
you know, and, and that's kind of like what makes them butt heads against each other, and then they both have to find their own way. And I think Woody is also leaving under this lie of like he has to be just the perfect toy for just this perfect child, and he has to have this perfect voice box. He's also living the same lie that Gabby is, and it's about accepting a new worldview that Bose give him. Like you can be lost, and it's okay. Like you know, you can you know have lots of kids play with you and bring lots of joy to lots of people. It doesn't have to just be one child, and that's absolutely fine, too. And so it's just about opening up the world of both of those characters. And it was. uh, To me, it was a scene I was noticing when I was in the theater. Uh, Most of the tears came from that scene with the lost child. Like, we all can relate to being afraid. Yeah. And just when when she finds Gabby and lights up her face... It was, was, I thought, it was the, the most emotional moment of the movie. Yeah, I mean, and there's a, the whole theme also that's underlying this movie is this idea of purpose and what's your purpose in life and do you define your purpose or does your world define the purpose for you? And I think that um, if you can be of service and, and help someone else is kind of the message in the movie, then you found your purpose in life and you don't have to be perfect to do that. I did like Buzz's line about, you know, she doesn't need you anymore. Yeah. Bonnie, not Bo Peep. <laughs> so what were the conversations about how Woody would say goodbye to his friends? Well, I mean, that was, that was a difficult one um, because, you know, because the, the people who built this franchise had sat with these so long, I think it was hard for them to say goodbye to these characters. And so it, it was about kind of walking the psychology of um, these people who had sat with these characters for 25 years who didn't say want to say goodbye with Woody as a toy who didn't really want to say goodbye mm-hmm. and feeding all of that to the actual script together. And I think the key to uh, that ending is that once Woody's world is opened up to be bigger than a children's room, he can't ever go back to a children's room. And so I think kind of like going down that route got everyone kind of on board with like, yes, this is just the natural ending and this is just how it has to go. It's interesting. His toy friends went to a dark place sabotaging, trying to send dad to prison. Yeah. (laughs) So they really were aggressively trying to help him. (laughs) Was that always the case? Let's get dad in prison. It was was a one-off joke um, that had been in the beginning when when Jesse was like, you know, debating like how to stop the the RV from going away. And it was just a one-off joke with Butter the Unicorn going like let's get dad thrown in prison and as we were figuring out the ending i was like we should have buttercup try to get dad thrown in prison like that should have been a serious pitch to the other toys and he was like no we're doing this (laughs) so speaking of that uh what was your reaction when you first saw on screen would he give jesse the sheriff's badge Um, turning it over that that was uh that was another little bit of a battle um and i uh that was that was my idea as well, because and and myself and Valerie other points we we were very much like Woody has to put Jesse in charge next, and she kind of needs to be the next generation that's going to be leading all the toys forward. And there was a bit of debate going on because they were like, you know, toys can't give up their accessories, and we're like, well, he gets off his voice box, he can give away his badge. So <laughs> well, I remember Bonnie Bonnie earlier gave yeah. Jesse the badge, so and Woody yeah. took it back. Well, Bonnie yeah. gave it back. I mean, yeah, but Jesse. yeah, but Jesse gives it gives it back too, and I, I think. I think that's also just showing how his friends are trying to still make him fit into this place where he doesn't quite belong anymore. And I think like him giving her the badge is just kind of like the ultimate act and kind of paying off their friendship. Uh, and it was, of course, it was fun watching them in, their, in the post-credits uh, now trying to help other toys. Yeah. The new mission. Uh, and, of course, the laser plan. 
Where'd yeah. that come from? Uh, Jordan Peele. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that was, um, oh goodness. That we, we had so many joke moments that just did not belong in the movie. And I think it was just like seeing like how many, how many of those like fun moments we could get in at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and you always want to end on the existential note when Forky's asked, how am I alive? <laughs> well, well, I mean, that was a thing. I mean, and that was actually a studio note we kept getting from Disney. They were like, why is Forky alive? And our response was like, why are any of us alive? Um, <laughs> And, and so that was kind of like our, our way of answering that studio note with kind of a joke. <laughs> it was nice, though. I mean, it was also showing Forky's now not, no longer a puppy. Yeah, he's no longer a puppy. He's a fully formed toy, you know. I, I, think, I think on that walk and talk, like, Forky's pretty much like, no, I, Bonnie needs me. I'm going to be a toy. And then the rest of his, his, the movie is a bit of him learning how to do that. So by the end, he's like, I'm a toy. <laughs> so how was it for you when uh, Toy Story 4 won Best Animated Feature? It was, it was fantastic. I mean, I think, I think we, were, we were all, you know, I went from being like, my initial meeting, like, why on earth would you make this movie, to it, it being something that's really embraced and, and people seem to really love it. And I, I think there's nothing better as an artist and it's not so much, I think, the award of it all. I think it's just seeing that people are engaging with this movie and getting things from it in a way that you hope that they do. And to see that actually happen is just, it, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's really wonderful that people are, are digging it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back a little bit of time. Uh, we have aspiring screenwriting students in the audience. Uh, how did you get started? Like, well, how did you get started? In, you know, I mean, I, I always wanted to be a writer and I, w- I went to film school. And then after film school, um, I did a couple of just, like, development jobs. Like, I just worked as, like, a PA. I got people coffee. Like, I did coverage on scripts. And um, it, was, it was a great experience because I learned the business side of screenwriting and how executives talk to writers and how they give notes, um, which, which was an invaluable education. But then I also quickly learned, like, you just need a lot of time to write if you want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And I was working, like, 10, 12-hour days. So I had to stop doing that, and I just went through the typical series of just, like, awful jobs while I was trying to write. Um, I ended up producing a few documentaries on the side, and then um, I was doing some commercial writing. And honestly, I was about to give up. It had been, mm-hmm. like, about... I'd been out of school, like, about five years, and nothing was happening, and I was just like, ah, you know, maybe I'll just move into my parents' basement. My parents didn't have a basement. And I was like, oh, my God, there's not even a basement for me to go to. I'm, I'm just screwed. <laughs> and out of that frustration, I was just like, you know, I'm going to write a script that I don't think will ever get made. And it just has everything I'm passionate about. It was about um, Stanley Kubrick, because I'm a big cinephile. It was about Stanley Kubrick, and I love conspiracy theories. And it was about Stanley Kubrick faking the moon landing, but it was told through the POV of the female publicist that had to get rally him to kind of do this um and that ended up getting a bunch of attention and people seemed to like it and um that got me my manager I ended up making this thing called the blacklist and then from there I got my first studio job and then I was like oh the door is open I'm like on the studio hire list I'm like I'm never gonna let them close the door again and I just kept working and working and I wrote a bunch of scripts for studios that never got made um, and then I kind of ended up in the Disney family of it all. And, 
you know, I, I did a version of Thor Ragnarok for Marvel, I did some stuff for Lucasfilm, and I, I ended up at Pixar. So I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it was just a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck and, and um, some frustration and anger. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, well, so did, did, you, could you did Star Wars Resistance. Yeah. So how do you think that helped prepare you for Toy Story, like writing the animation and... I, I think that there's just, I mean, animation is its own weird beast, and there's something about with live action, and this, I'm going to say this, and you're going to be like, duh, Stephanie, we get this. Like, when you shoot something, you just shoot it, and you're done with it, and you're stuck with what you film. With animation, up to a certain extent, you can just keep redrawing whatever you want mm-hmm. in that frame, and you can keep reworking it. And so it's just a different way of working, because, you know, if the scene isn't working, you know, and you filmed it wrong, you got to try to fix it in the edit. But here, if it's not working, you can just fix it with the artist and the writer. Mm. So it's just a different way of making film. So, but now uh, you're on a new project. You've done one beloved series of Toy Stories, not enough. You, <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment. Glutton for punishment. You decided to go on to the new Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. series. Uh, was that experience like working on that? Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was another one where um, my, my friends were show running it and they were like, we're going to do Lord of the Rings. And I was like, why? Um, <laughs> the Peter Jackson movies were so great. And then they explained to me what their idea was to do it. And I was like, that would be really cool. Okay. I'm in. What are we doing? Um, and, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, there's 3,000 years of pretend history of Middle-earth, so there's, there's a lot of story to tell there. <laughs> it must be hard than, like, trying, then what do you take? Like, what do you throw out? Because you only have a certain amount of room. Completely, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we do have time for a couple of questions. Well, congratulations, Stephanie, on a beautiful film. Um, you mentioned The Blacklist, uh, and I'm curious, what about that script do you think... Um, brought the these other jobs to you. You know what skill set or insight that was in that script or in your other work that got you this job. I I would say that um, I I think that that script because it, it was kind of like a known um, conspiracy and I think I had an interesting way in through a female character that was surprising um, and and I would have to say that I think really the character work that I did that in that script, I think really got me a lot of attention um, because I think, especially with these big budget features, um, you know, it's, it's not that hard to get an action scene written. I think the character work is really the hard stuff. So when they're hiring people for these larger franchises, they really look like, can you do dialogue really well? Can you do character arcs really well? Um, especially even in TV, like they very often will hire playwrights to work in TV writers' rooms just because they're so good with juicy dialogue and, and juicy character moments. And I think um, that if you can really like get that muscle worked out in your writing, um, you're much more employable, which I, I wish I'd known that going in. <laughs> Hi. So my question was... Um, so for me personally, I've always really enjoyed the Toy Story series' unique settings and how they find these large varieties of toy-centric settings. So I was curious, in the writing process, um, is the give and take between the conflict and the unique toys and the unique setting more linear? Like, this is the conflict we want to tell, these are toys that would be good to experience it, and then this is where you might find those toys? Or is it more fluid and um, kind of one influences the other it's a little bit more fluid, and um, it really comes from the character journey and, and that character arc. And um, 
a lot of the locations were chosen, obviously, because where, where are realistic places where you're going to naturally find toys, and where can toys naturally be alive and no one will notice? Mm. <laughs> those kind of play into it. Um, so th- those were the criteria, but the locations were picked mainly being like, what's going to most challenge Woody and his preconceived notions of the world? Um, and then figuring out, you know, I mean, the whole reason there is a carnival there is because it's just a natural place where toys are going to be, you know, an antique store. Um, there's lots of places to hide. There's creepy old toys there. You know, I mean, those those locations were chosen because you could plausibly see toys being alive in them. Can you explain how it is to write with two other people or was it just two? Um, it was it was myself and Andrew. Um, they had other writers that that were on it before I came on board. Um and uh, when I came on board, it was just myself and, and Andrew that we were writing it. And um, I don't think it would have been possible to do this movie without Andrew Stanton because he is so the fundamental DNA of this movie. Like, I was able to bring in kind of like an outsider perspective and help with the Bo Peep of it all and help bring out the Gabby Gabby. And, and um, I think you needed to have that legacy voice in this series because it's just he was there from day one of creating this franchise. Hello, um, thank you for your time. So my question is about Gabby Gabby. Um, When you were explaining her story, I found that there was a little bit of discord between how you explained it and how I perceived it. Um, And I just had some questions about like what what there is to say about privilege within her story because I noticed yeah I noticed that a lot of the time she would tell you know the little creepy dolls what to do for her and she felt pretty entitled to Woody's box before she had even really met him so I was just wondering what there was to say there about that yeah I mean I I think um I think Gabby Gabby um learned how to be who she was through an instruction booklet that was written in 1950 um and I think she was play acting um out what she thought she should be the entire time um, and, and I think, you know, I think, I don't necessarily think that it was the idea that she came from a place of privilege. I think she was a factory defect that had to learn how to be a toy because she never had any interaction with a child and she only had her instruction manual that she came with. And I think that's why it comes off as so creepy. Um, she doesn't know how to engage with anyone because she never had to or never got a chance to. And I think that's kind of like where we were coming through with all of that. But I completely see what you're saying. Yeah, she, uh, she, she's, she's not very nice to, those, to the dummies all the time. <laughs> well, we, we always end our Q&A with the same question. We are an academic institution, and we do have a lot of aspiring screenwriters in the audience, so we want you to be a professor for a moment. Um, so what would be one movie you would assign them to see, or, or script, that you would assign our students to examine as a way to study screenwriting? Oh, gosh, there are so many. Um, for me, I think, like, like some of the wonderful things that I... Uh, I'm, I'm a big William Goldman fan, <laughs> which sounds so cliche, but I, I think if you read any of his screenplays, it's just kind of a great lesson in how to get flow down the page um, and how to make something like a good read, but also make something that's a wonderful production document. Um, anything that he's written. I mean, anything from Princess Bride to, you know, Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, like all of those. It, it's, it's really like a, a master class in how to make something a 
good read that can also be made into a movie. Cool. Well, let's, uh, I want to thank Stephanie and all of you for coming out for today's show. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.